If you have a Bible, Matthew chapter 6, um, back to Matthew again. Uh, Bob did a fine job last week and alluded to the Beatitudes a little bit and how that ties into holy living, and we're thankful for that. Let's look to the Lord one more time before we open his word. Father, I thank you for grace. I thank you that you have given us, in your mercy and grace, a written revelation of what we need to know about you. And in that, Father, we learn how to approach and be part of your kingdom. We learn how to have a relationship with you. Father, I thank you for that written word. As we look into it, Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit will guide our hearts and our minds and that we may be filled on the inside, strengthened by your Spirit in the inner man. Father, we love you, we praise you, and guide our hearts now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As we've been talking about Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, we've mentioned several times that it's not a um, buckshot of all different unrelated thoughts. Uh, that Jesus is taking it all somewhere. He's heading in a direction and he's given us the blueprint, the guidelines, the way to recognize his children in his kingdom living in a kingdom that is not at all like what he is going to describe in, in these chapters that we've looked at. We looked at chapter five and that was the, the law, the righteousness that gets put down deep inside of the heart of a child of the kingdom of God. And as that righteousness penetrates, we've looked at it in a few different ways, and that we saw that it goes deep. It's not superficial. It's not just outward observances, but it has to change us from the very inside out. We're looking in chapter six right now in the practicing of that righteousness and the warnings that come along with that. Because if you look at the depth of what is mentioned in chapter five and all of those things, if you began to be like that, the possibility exists that you could become proud and you could think, wow, I'm really getting pretty good at this Christian thing because I do all this stuff. And, and chapter six is going to be a bunch of warnings that are being given. And, and we're going to look at some of those this morning. And we've looked at some already is that things that can go wrong as you are practicing righteousness before God. And chapter seven eventually will be pursuit of righteousness. Uh, we've looked at it a couple different ways. You could say it's about false teaching, correcting wrong ways of, of looking at the scriptures. False piety, correcting wrong ways of looking at, at the way that I live, at the way I practice and do church, so to speak. And then the false path, those that would think they're part of the kingdom of God. Uh, but some of you are more optimistic, so you don't like all the false stuff. So it's about true teaching. It's about true piety. It's about a true path to follow. And, and those things that guide us and show, show to the world the distinctiveness of those who say they're part of the kingdom of God. But it's also showing those that claim to be part of the kingdom of God. Are you truly? Can you lay your life over top of Matthew 5, 6, and 7 and say, that is me. And I know that is me because God's spirit is in me and these truths set my heart on fire. My life is on a trajectory uh, that goes right along with what is being said here. So we had looked at um, chapter six and we gave it a big category head that the father is before the eyes of a child of the kingdom so that they become unhypocritical in the way that they live. And the general theme for all of chapter six 
is beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. And the key admonition there is to beware or to continually put your mind to this. Think about this all the time because there's this propensity in us to want to make our Christianity, our religion, a surface type thing, to look good before other people. Um, all of you that got up this morning, you, you took care of yourself. You don't look the way you do right now, the way you rolled out of bed, because you realized you were going to present yourself before other people. Well, when that becomes the way we do our Christianity, that we look at the way we come across as more important important than what God sees and that what God has then our religion is a surface thing and not something that has penetrated and has gone down very deep. Uh, I remember, um, some of you might not remember, but there used to be an occupation called a paper boy would deliver papers. And I was a paper boy and I had a, a stingray bicycle. Remember those things? And a big basket for putting all the papers in or your little brother. Uh, whatever would work, and you'd drive around town with that. And I remember on one block of the paper route that we had, uh, that, that there were dogs. There were dogs that would just love to come out and chase you. And I remember as you would turn the corner, I would beware. I would put my mind to the fact that at any corner, at any moment, I could be pursued and would have to really quickly go away on my stingray bicycle as fast as my little legs could carry me because of the dogs. That bewareness is what goes all the way through Matthew 6, is that you will have a tendency to just live Christianity up here in self-righteousness. Don't let that happen. And we looked at the first part of that is it's a temptation to become self-righteous in the area of giving or the giving of alms. And in chapters, uh, verses one through eight, this is our, our devotion before God. The first example was that of giving. It's supposed to be intimate, that before God, I give things quietly. I give them without um, any accolades, with no rewards to myself. I don't advertise it to others. I don't advertise it to myself, that this is one way that it's supposed to be intimate. Today, we're going to go into the second subject that Jesus talks about, and that's going to be intimate prayer. How am I to pray? How does this whole prayer thing work? How does prayer accomplish things. And this is going to be kind of mysterious, and we're going to be in this for about three weeks, uh, because prayer, quite honestly, isn't something that anyone can explain fully how it works. Because God is sovereign. God is in control. He is working out his perfect will. Yet he has told us to pray, and you have not because you ask not. So how does that work? And we're going to kind of try to put it together in some ways we can explain, some ways we can't. But God has called us to prayer that our prayers make a difference in the outworking of his will. To fully explain that, I, I, I can't. But I believe what God has said in his word that it can make a difference and it does make a difference. But so much has been said about prayer. Uh, so much misunderstanding about prayer has been 
put out there that a lot of folks are coming at God in the wrong way completely. So in this, we're going to see um, some of those wrong ways of coming to God in prayer and Jesus giving in what's called the Lord's Prayer, but really the disciples' prayer, not just the parts of prayer that need to be there, but even the very demeanor of prayer itself. How do I approach God? What do I do when I pray? What should my heart and attitude be like? Uh, the first thing in Piety 101 in this passage of Scripture it has to do with the maligning of prayer. One way that prayer gets perverted or messed up, and we read these words, and when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogue and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. So the first caution given to believers is don't let pray Prayer be a masquerade, something that you do to be seen or to be heard by other people. Now, in the context of the culture of the day, there were three main times that prayers were offered. And it was often the same sort of prayer that we're going to see in a minute. But as this would happen, Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 5, uh, called the Shema, was part of the essence of that prayer. And then some other portions of the Old Testament were then combined with it. And in keeping with these observances, there became traditions, became rituals that people would do, uh, movements. And what was happening is often these prayers would be offered in the synagogue. Sometimes the priest or the religious leader would stand in front of the, the Ark of the Testimony or where the law was and pray this prayer out loud. So the opportunity was there for a little bit of showmanship, a little bit of Pride to present the prayer, perhaps in the most creative way, or the most, or the loudest way, or in some way draw attention to oneself rather than to the God who the prayer was being offered to. Uh, in doing this, they sometimes the, the theologians think that they would be on the way to the temple but they would kind of go slow so they didn't get there quite in time, so they would be praying on the street corner. Oh, I didn't make it, but I'm going to pray and do my show right here, right where I am, because that's where I just didn't make it, but I have to observe the time of prayer. So they might pray the prayer, uh, which was probably entitled the Amidah. If you've heard of that, if you're familiar with Judaism at all, it's the prayer that has been the central theme of Judaism way, way back to the Second Temple times, all the way to today, even as well. And in doing that, I have a quick little video that talks about the, the kind of prayer that was probably being offered here in Matthew 6, an explanation from a rabbi about what it is done, how it's done, so you can kind of get a cultural picture of what was happening as these different Pharisees would pray, what would they be doing? The heart of Jewish worship is a prayer referred to as the Amidah, or standing prayer. In fact, reciting the Amidah was synonymous with prayer itself to the ancient rabbis and is sometimes referred to in the Talmud simply as tefillah. The Amidah is the main course of Jewish prayer. Everything else is an appetizer or a side dish. The Amidah is a chain of short blessings that are recited together while standing quietly at every occasion of formal Jewish worship. Although the Amidah is a prayer recited silently while standing in place, 
reciting the Amidah is hardly a stationary experience, and many worshipers develop unique ways to move their bodies while reciting the words of the Amidah. Some rush through the words in only a few minutes while others stand in quiet dialogue with God, oblivious to the clock steadily marking the passage of time. The Talmudic rabbis provided guidance for the basic structure of the Amidah. The first three blessings should be occasions for praise of God. The final three blessings comprise our expressions of gratitude as we take leave of God's presence. And the blessings in the middle are a chance to make specific requests. The blessings in between the first three and the final three blessings change according to the season. During the weekday, 13 specific requests comprise the bulk of the Amidah. These requests focus on practical needs of health and the ability to make wise choices, as well as more lofty yearnings for redemption and a world transformed by justice. On Shabbat and holidays, when we pause to rest, those 13 requests are replaced by one blessing that focuses on the sacred nature of the day. Historically, the prayer leader prayed out loud on behalf of the community. Today, individuals have a chance to personalize their silent Amidah while joining the congregation in the communal Amidah. Although there are many different versions of the Amidah in use, among contemporary Jewish communities, they all share this overall structure and they share most words in common too. Once printed in a prayer book, the words of the Amidah cannot change, but it is appropriate to add one's own personal words of prayer at the end of the Amidah or even in the middle of the Amidah when our own personalized prayers correspond to a theme of one of the standardized lessons. Each Amidah is a unique opportunity to disconnect from the world around us and its distractions and to use the words of the Amidah to remind us what is truly important. Each Amidah is a unique opportunity to cultivate a relationship with God. Each Amidah is a unique opportunity to serve God with our hearts. So you could see and get an idea that this prayer wasn't just asking a blessing for dinner. Uh, that would be done in two or three minutes. There was a great deal of content. There was a great deal of expectation. And you could see how different people had their movements and ways that they would uh, get involved. And something that was made to bring people to an intimacy before God had become showmanship. Something that they would do so that people would look and say, look how wonderful they are. Look how sincere they are. And it would be a hypocritical masquerade. And that can still happen today as people pray, as we pray out loud, uh, as we would pray before people that we would be like more conscious of, make sure I say the words right or make sure I say it in such a way. And, and sometimes a person, when they pray out loud, their, their demeanor changes because uh, they know they're being heard. They know that people are going to listen, so they may pray in a different way. So the first thing that Jesus is saying is that when you come to me, don't ever do it for showmanship. Don't ever pray to impress other people in one way or another. Uh, the story is told in New England about a, a man who got up at one of the churches in New England and offered a prayer that was eloquent and beautiful and just went on and on. And, and the person got up afterwards and said to, the, said to the church that that was the most eloquent prayer ever offered to a Boston audience. Who is that offered to? You see, the idea is when we pray, we're not offering it to an audience. We're offering it to the king. We're in dialogue with him, and that needs to be first and foremost. 
But the Pharisees love themselves. They love the opportunity to parade themselves. Uh, behind their piety was pride. Look at me and how I pray and how well I can do this. For them, their reward was paid in full. They got everything their prayers wanted to claim a claim of other people. So Jesus goes on and say the first way that prayer gets ruined is to see it as a spectacle, to see it as a show. And he says, that's not what it's supposed to be about at all. And then he goes into what would be the motive of prayer or what we're supposed to get to when we pray. But when you pray, contrasting they, when you pray, go into your room, shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. The picture, the, the motive behind prayer. I'm going to look at a couple of the words just to kind of put together what's exactly being said. The first thing is your room. If you look in some other translations, one will translate this word, the most private room, the secret and well-guarded place, the inner room, the Greek word tamion is the idea of the storeroom that was in a Jewish home that was probably the only lockable room out of the whole house. And often their valued possessions would be in this particular room. Giving a picture that Jesus is saying, when you pray, you go to the special place. You go to the place where treasures can be found. You go to a place of intimacy, a place that is guarded and special. Now, this is not uh, prohibiting public prayers, and it's not prohibiting prayer meetings, but it's giving the heart of true prayer, that when you pray, visualize yourself as if you're going to, and in many cases, do this. Go to a private place. Go to somewhere that, that it, you know is intimate, that is personal, that is protected. Have you ever heard anyone ever say, I'm so busy, I don't have time to pray? That's not a protected place. That's not a guarded place. In some ways, it's a testimony to the reason we often don't pray is that we're so self-reliant, we think we can do it all with God. Those that have heard people say that say, you know, I'm so busy, I don't have time not to pray because I need God. I need his hand. I need to be in that, that protected place. So the first element of the intimacy of prayer is, is come apart. Come to that secret room, that place that is protected. And when you do that, shut the door. Shut the door. Uh, why do that? Well, one thing, you're not doing it for show. If it's just you and the Lord, it's something about privacy that will help to purify our motives to help purify our motives. Um, something when you do it all alone and you're the only one, it's usually very sincere. It's full of meaning because there's no other reason to be doing it. I'm not doing it to broadcast. I'm not doing it to be seen whatsoever. Uh, I remember back in my old basketball days, uh, some of you remember what it's like if you played basketball to try to do a left-handed layout and you're a right-handed person. You don't look very good at doing that when you first learn. And, and you try to get it, and it's like, this just doesn't seem right. 
And before a game, they always have warm-ups where people are doing the layups. And during those warm-ups, you want to look good. You're, you know, before people and the other team's watching. So when I would do that, I would never do a left-handed layup because I would look silly and it would be embarrassing. I couldn't do it and I couldn't look good. But when I went home and shut the door, I would go into the backyard by myself and practice that left-handed layup, and practice it, and practice it, so that when I was on showtime, I would look good. You know, and the idea behind the door in privacy is where the improvement really took place. I was sincere. I wanted to learn how to do it to become a better player, and when I was alone, I would do it. I would shut the door and it, and it was, I didn't care about what anyone else was thinking. I was going to learn how to do a left-handed layup. That was my goal. And the picture here is when we pray, you go to the, the treasure room and you shut the door. Just you and the Lord. I remember as a child, um, my dad would occasionally call me into his room and shut the door. And that either meant one of two things. Usually that I was in big trouble. Because the shut door meant there's going to be a conversation here that no one else but you and I are going to hear. And that's the picture of the intimacy of prayer. And sometimes I would be in big trouble, but there'd be other times that my dad would give me a good word. He would say, you know, I want to just talk to you about where you're headed or what you did in that, in that situation. I was really proud how that went for you. And, and, and that shut the door conversation immediately for better or for worse, either meant I needed correcting or I was getting commended. But there was a privacy and a special time that I knew when dad shut the door and talked that it was intimate. It was personal. That he and I were the only players on the stage at the time. The second phrase or third phrase is who is in secret? Who, the Jerusalem Bible says who is in the secret place? Not in the hectic busyness of life, uh, but in an undistracted, intimate place. So all of the pictures of the words here are building a picture of prayer where I am alone intimately before God. I am seeking him. He is my friend. He is my king. He is my Lord. He is the creator. He is the judge. He is the sustainer. And he is the one that I have conference with, the one I have conversation with. Some often have said that you should never really pray till you actually visualize yourself in the presence of God, that you are in conversation with the king. And when that realization has hit you, you're ready to speak. You are ready to talk to him. And until you see that intimacy, that perhaps you're really not ready to speak because you're going to be praying to yourself or praying to the ceiling or praying to the walls. But when you know that you've entered the presence of God and that you have his attention and you are about to speak before him, the king, but also your friend, then prayer takes off. Prayer becomes that intimate conversation where we seek the person of God. Often for many, prayer is, well, I need, I need, I need. So I will pray. I will ask for stuff. I need things. And prayer is not a pursuit about a person or a relationship for God to, to
to speak to us and quietly let us know that, that he loves us and so many things that can happen in prayer. It's really a shopping list. It's Lord, you know, it's just about getting my will on earth done. And here are the things that I need. Oh, I'm done through 10. Talk to you later. I'll see you when I need more stuff. Or when things get out of my control. And some of you would laugh right away. It's like, how many things are really in your control? But we think they are. And we think that, you know, I got this, I got that. This one, I'm going to struggle with Jesus. So time to pray to you. That's what Jesus is saying. No, 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 no. It's about conversation, seeking his very person, not just his hand. Psalm 27, 8 says, you have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. You see, when it comes to prayer, it's not as if I decide that I'm going to start a conversation with God. He has already started it. He's already said, come and seek my face. Let's start talking. So when I go to prayer, I've already got his attention. He's already started the conversation. It's the times when I don't pray that I'm kind of rude. I'm going just going past him and forgetting about him and not entering into his throne room where he's already for the conversation. He's already to talk to us. And as this happens, as, as prayer becomes that intimate approach to God, where people are out of the way, it's he and I alone. There's a great ministry of prayer that takes place. And this is seen in the phrase that he will reward you. Now, this reward here has been taken by many people today to say that, well, what prayer is a tool to get rewards. It's about the money. It's about the prosperity. It's about this. It's about that. It's about claiming a healing. It's about claiming this. It's about bossing God around and saying, Lord, I demand, I, in your name, make this happen before me where God becomes more of a rabbit's foot or something tool to get what I think ought to be done, I don't think that's the kind of reward that comes through prayer. When you talk to people who know the Lord through prayer and they were to tell you the kind of benefits, the kind of rewards that come through prayer, the list would be very different than financial benefits or necessary physical blessings that are tangible that I can hold on to. Often the reward in meeting with God is a building up of who I am. It's an understanding of who he is. And as you begin to understand who God is, it's gonna change you. It's going to make you more like him. Just a couple quick things that I've, in my conversations with people, like what has happened when you, you meet with the Lord and you earnestly pray and you earnestly seek him? And they said, you know, some of the things that take place, the things that change on the inside of me. The first one is, I, I call him the Abba Father. That word Abba is the first uh, Hebrew word an infant would utter when they talked about a parent, like Dada. It's that when we go to prayer, we have an intimacy with God where he becomes not just the king of the universe, but our very father as if we were a tiny little baby. We know him in that personal kind of way. Romans 8 says, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption of sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit. This is in prayer this happens. 
that we are the children of God. If you struggle with your identity, this is what prayer does. It strengthens you. When you, you have that self-hatred and those things where people are saying these things about you, God in prayer reaffirms that he is your Abba Father, who you are. You are not who they say you are. You who are, I have redeemed, whom I bought back. You are my child. I am your father. There's that identity that gets reaffirmed when we pray, when the world has tried to strip our true identity away from us. It gives us a peace that establishes our heart. We read in Numbers that the, the greatest benediction given by Aaron, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. I don't know how many people that, that I know that go through a turmoil in life. Things are out of control. The burdens seem bigger than a human can carry. But when they come out of the prayer room, when they come out of it, there is a strength. There is a calm that shouldn't be there. They should be worrying. They should be upset. They should be in self-pity. But no, they're not. Because in time with God, he has put down his hand and said, there will be peace upon you. That even though nothing seems to be good in your life or working the way that you think it should, you can be okay with this because I am your father. I will establish your heart in God, not in circumstances. It can be a time of great satisfaction where there's yearnings that are inside, things that I desire and emotional needs and things that God says, you know what? I can refresh your soul. I can rebuild your heart. I can establish you. That hunger that you have for this, I'm the satisfaction for it. I have what you need. You don't need to grab for other things. There's a thirst that can be quenched, in, and prayer is a time where God lets him be, himself be seen as enough that I don't need all these other things that I think I need, that the world tells me I need to be satisfied, that he alone can be the satisfaction. It can be a time of great companionship where intimacy can be found. Perhaps I, I struggled with loneliness, but it's prayer that can bring God close, that can even take the pangs of loneliness away and that to know that I'm not a stranger from the great God of the universe. I'm not an orphan or an alien. I'm a child of the one true king. And as I belong to him, he can bring his sense of companionship to my heart that even though I may be lonely in earthly relationships and feel kind of removed or estranged, I have a friend who sticks closer than a brother one who is there with me. It can be a time of restoration. Have you ever felt guilt and regret for the past? I think we would all say yes. Have you ever tortured yourself because of the sins of the past or the sins of omission when you should have done something and perhaps didn't? And it's in prayer where God reminds you of his blood of the blood of Jesus Christ that has been shed on our behalf, that covers and forgives our sins. And not only does it forgive, but it continues to forgive. 
so that there is no reason to be full of condemnation and guilt-ridden because Jesus has once for all died so our sins and guilt could be taken care of. And you could go on, and if I were to talk to some of you who have spent time in that quiet place, you could say, you know, when I'm in prayer, this happens. When I pray before God, this takes place because prayer is an intimate time where you, what God is starts to rub off on us, where we see him. And, and, and when you talk to anybody long enough, you start to sound like them. You ever see a couple together, you know, and they, they kind of like start looking like each other after a while. Hopefully that won't happen to Alice. She looks good with hair. But anyway, you know, you just you start to rub off and you start to think like the other person and you know what they're going to think and you know what the sentences are. And, and that's, what, that's what prayer is. It's not just talking to God. It's talking with God. It's being in relationship. And he starts to burn himself into our hearts and things begin to change. And one of the great things about prayer, and I know many of us have felt that prayer at times seems fruitless. We pray and wonder, did it ever get past the ceiling? Did it even make a difference? And we pray and we're done. And sometimes we don't always feel refreshed. And we're wondering, uh, what did it do? Where did that prayer go? One picture of prayer that is beautiful and is awesome is that prayers are eternal. When you pray, it's not like a vapor that just comes out of your mouth on a cold day and then it dissipates and then it's gone. In fact, your prayers outlive this world. They outlive you. Your prayers that are made in a pure heart to God have power and significance that continue on. Why do I say this? Revelation chapter 5, the end of the world. As things are going to become consummated and the world is coming to an end, every prayer that has ever been uttered by believers is part of the end of the world, is part of the consummation of all things. Uh, let me read just a little bit of it in the key verses right there. Romans 5, verse 4. And I began to weep loudly, this is John, because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. That's a key word there when it says as though it had been slain doesn't mean it really wasn't. It means it's in the process of being slain. It's in the act of it so that even before God, what Jesus did on the cross is an ever-present activity. That's why your sins are always forgiven. Because before God, the sacrifice of Christ is a present tense thing. That as, as John's looking, he's like, the sacrifice is still happening. The, the effects of the cross and what's taking place, this lamb is still paying the price of sin. And as he's watching the seven horns and the seven eyes talk about the power and the omniscience of God, which are the seven spirits that go out into the earth. And he went back and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Every prayer is captivating. And as God holds the scroll, and people have looked at that 
as God's will, his final settlement of the affairs of the universe. Wills in those days were sealed seven times. And as God is opening up the end of the world and what he has ordained would happen and his plan for it, and he being the only one who was worthy to do it, our prayers are there with him. Our prayers are part of the closing ceremony so that when I pray, it's not like it just poof, it's gone. God has grabbed it. And he said, I am working that into the will. And when the fulfillment of all time comes, I will right every wrong. Every prayer will be answered. Everything comes together before God. What a conversation. Have you ever been accused by someone nearby you after a conversation that you really didn't listen? Did you even hear what I said? All of us. Happens all the time. But not with. God is not a forgetful God. God is not a busy God. You know what? You, you keep praying and asking, I have a bad memory. So just keep reminding me and I'll get to it. It's not like that at all. God says every word from your mouth, every cry of your heart has been kept and is part of this cup that, that I'm working everything to answer. You may not get it. You may not understand it, but rest assured that when the, rest, the world's history comes to culmination, your prayers still have meaning, your prayers still have power, they still have an effect because of the God that they are offered to. It has been said by one E.M. Bounds, God shapes the world by prayer. Prayers are deathless. The lips that uttered them may have closed in death. The heart that felt them may have ceased to beat, but the prayers live before God. And God's heart is set on them. Prayers outlive the lives of those who utter them. They outlive a generation, outlive an age, outlive a world. Prayer before God, conversation that he's initiated, builds us, changes us, outlasts us in the heart of God Almighty. The pure gospel of the kingdom that leads us into prayer must be free from masquerade, but it must also be free from manipulation. And the second warning that is going to be given that prayer can be abused and misused is the maligning of prayer where we use it to manipulate God. This is kind of has a current day um, application because there is a great misuse of prayer today and it's such a big area that we're going to take next week to deal with it but there will be people today that will tell you that if you pray and do this every financial need that you ever have will be met have you ever turned a tv preacher on and just felt this isn't right i don't exactly even know why it just doesn't seem to make sense. Have you ever heard of anybody say it is God's will that you should never be sick, that you should never have any problem whatsoever, and that healing has been part of the atonement, and if you don't have it, you're not praying right. You're not using the right words. You're not using the right formula. In fact, if you have a disease or sickness, it's really your fault. That is a gospel that Jesus never preached. That is a good news that has hurt more believers than it has ever, ever helped. 
where people have believed that somehow my prayer, that if I do it right, if I have enough faith, I will make this mountain move and this disease will be gone and this thing will be. God says, no, that's not the gospel. That is a perversion of prayer that was never meant to be. And it's a gospel that is not even in the scriptures anywhere. And this is a very sobering and stern warning that is given in the scriptures. We read these words. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you who want to distort the gospel of Christ. And if you look at the warning given to those who would distort the purposes of prayer and the gospel, we read these words. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. That's about the worst thing that you could ever say to anybody. Let somebody who would preach a different gospel basically die in hell. That they should have no place because there is one gospel God is God, not a God to be manipulated. That if I as a person somehow can make him do what I want because I have been blessed with the authority to demand it of him. And if you hear some people pray, it's like they're bossing God around. Like they're telling him what he needs to do. And that I have some authority in me. And because of that, God, you got to do this. You promised, I'm claiming it for myself as if I've got this ability and strength that is mine. And there's much that needs to be said about this, and that's why next week's going to hit it pretty hard, is because it's such a subtle thing, and many of the teachers out there who were saying these things couch it in a lot of words that you can just miss exactly what they're saying. And they misrepresent the power of Jesus Christ. They misrepresent who the Holy Spirit is. They misrepresent who faith is. And this is the idea that's happening here. It, Jesus is warning about those who would use words and prayer in a manipulative kind of way before the Lord. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. For they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. For your father knows what you need before you ask him. God doesn't need to be manipulated. He's not a God who doesn't want to help us. He's not a God who needs to be coerced because somehow he forgets to give us a blessing. He is the one who knows what you need even before you ask. You don't need to use prayer as a tool to manipulate and somehow get what you didn't get that you think you deserve right here and right now. This theology, this perversion uh, has been called many things in different places, but it focuses on empty phrases and using the right words when you pray. And if you use these words, you will unlock the power that's out there and you will get everything you're due because those things are supposed to come to you. It is called the word of faith. And as we get into it next week, I don't want to be here a person just bashing other people. But I want to uncover and explain a distortion of the gospel that is so prevalent on almost every TV station that you go to and explain why they say what they do and what is behind it. Because in their proclamations, they've manipulated the gospel 
and made it something to get my will done here on earth. And in many of the teachers, some of them you will have heard of. Some of them, you may have read their books. But in all of this, there's a misunderstanding of the intimacy and purpose of prayer. And who is really in charge here? Whose will is supposed to get done at the end of my prayer? Mine or God's? Am I to demand from him or am I to humbly come before him? And in preparing for that, I would ask that you read the Lord's Prayer, not just for content, but for the demeanor of the prayer. That when I come before him, what is my heart supposed to be look like? Am I to be demanding? Am I to come with, with an agenda? Or am I to come in humility, making my requests before him as the God who is all wise and all knowing? And you can kind of see where I lead on that. But in all of that, this is such an important issue because I know so many damaged people who have been made to feel like it is their fault healing has not happened. It is their fault they don't have all the money they need because that's what the gospel is. It's giving you stuff. And that is such a heresy today that we need to know that prayer is that intimate conversation with God a celebration of a relationship, not a tool to unlock all those things that I, my little greedy heart wants, or my hurting heart wants, but it's a tool to get to know the God who satisfies, who fills, who changes, and whether he heals or not, he is the God that loves me and will sustain me in sickness or in health. In either case, it is the humble prayer that God is after. He's after that intimate relationship with us. May your prayers be in your secret room with God this week. In Jesus' name we pray. Father, give us all that we have in you. May we see it through prayer. May we see it outlived, uh, lived out in our lives. Lord, help us this week to um, concentrate on who you are, to make our life Come in alignment with all that you are. And may prayer be this week something that is special, that is sweet, that we enjoy with you. Father, make us into the people you desire us to be. May our prayers be honored as we seek to know you better. In Jesus' name.